the theme of the book really has led me to recognize these deep connections between consciousness, especially conscious self, and life. You know, the the claim, the primary claim being that we perceive ourselves and the world around us with, through, and because of our living bodies. I think of all the aspects of selfhood that we cling to and that we have some just deep-set resistance to their being explained in terms of science. Free will is probably uh, the most clingy. This is Brain Inspired. Hello, everyone. It's Paul. That voice you heard was the voice of Anil Seth. Anil is a neuroscientist and professor of cognitive and computational neuroscience at the University of Sussex, among his other titles. And on the podcast today, we discuss his new book, Being You, A New Science of Consciousness, which is about his research on consciousness and, of course, uh, historical accounts and other contemporary accounts of consciousness. So the book has been out for a few weeks now in the UK, where it was already a Sunday Times bestseller, for example, and it gets kind words from the likes of David Byrne, that is David Byrne of the Talking Heads, who calls it a brilliant beast of a book. But in the United States, where I'm standing right now, it is actually out today, October 19th. And in it, Anil lays out his framework for explaining consciousness which is embedded in what he calls the real problem of studying consciousness. You are undoubtedly familiar with the so-called hard problem, which was David Chalmers' term for our eternal difficulties to explain why we have subjective awareness at all, instead of being unfeeling, unexperiencing, machine-like organisms. Anil's real problem aims to explain, predict, and control the phenomenal properties of consciousness, And his hope is that by doing so, the hard problem uh, will dissolve, much like the confounding mystery of explaining life dissolved uh, with lots of good science. Anil's account of perceptual consciousness, like seeing red, uh, is that it's rooted in predicting our incoming sensory data. And his account of our sense of self, of being a person uh, in a body, is that it is rooted in predicting our bodily states and processes Uh, in order to control them. So we talk about that and a lot of other topics from the book, like free will, psychedelics, and Anil answers a handful of questions from uh, Megan Peters and Steve Fleming, both of whom were previous Brain Inspired guests, of course. I link to the book in the show notes at braininspired.co slash podcast slash 117. On the website, you can also see how to support the show through Patreon, which will give you access to all the full episodes and the opportunity to join our brain-inspired Discord community that has become uh, quite active lately and continues to grow. Thanks for listening. This is a fun conversation for me. Enjoy. Anil, thanks for being here. Uh, huge congratulations on the book. I, I, I know I sent this to you in email, but uh, it was very uh, refreshing, refreshingly clear, and uh, the writing style was just easy and, and fun to read. So nice job. Um, thanks, Paul. That that means a lot. And thanks for having me. We're going to, I don't want to bury the lead here, but I want to ask <laughs> uh, a couple of questions just about writing the book and the book itself before we get into its contents. Um, so 
on a recent episode, I had uh, Steve Grossberg on. And by the way, I, 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 have you um, heard his or, or read his uh, his recent tome or any of it? Conscious Mind, Resonant Brain. I haven't yet. I have ordered it, uh, but I have not yet read it. Okay. Well, it is it is a massive, massive book, and it's just kind of a collection of his work. And it took him like thirty years to write. Uh, and um, this is the same. Uh, like Mark, I had Mark Bickard on, and he's not done writing his thirty, forty year book. Uh, but you're like 25 years old, right? So yours couldn't have taken that long to write. How long, how long you've been working on this thing? Hold on. Did you say I'm 25 years old? I wish I was 25 years old. (laughs) I've, I've been, I guess in the business for about 25 years. So I started out in the mid nineties. Um, it took me about was five years that I signed an agreement to write the book. And then, of course, I think like many people, I just said, well, that's great. Now I'll put that away and uh, and <laughs> forget about it for a bit. And I think I started seriously writing it uh, about three and a half years ago. I think it took about three years, all in all, to write. Have you always been such a clear writer? Of course not. No, I mean, it's, it's, I think it's, it's really a skill that's to be learned. And of course, with this book, what clarity there is, is also great credit to the editors that I had too. I mean, the, the contribution that a good editor can make to a book is just really hard to overestimate. I mean, they can do f- amazing things with otherwise garbled and completely incoherent text. <laughs> yeah, I was harping on this fact. Uh, many scientists and researchers don't seem to use editors and the work suffers um, because of it. So uh, I just appreciate that <laughs> in general. So I told you I have uh, I have a handful of questions uh, from some folks that you know and some that you don't. Uh, and I, I thought I'd start off um, by playing one of those questions here as it pertains to communicating uh, consciousness. Right? It does. It seems like there's a slew of consciousness books right now. It's like the golden era of consciousness books. Um, do you agree with that? I don't know. There always seems to be a slew of consciousness books. Yeah. Uh, that's one of the one of the beautiful but also slightly challenging things about the area. Everybody's interested, but there's a lot of stuff out there too. A lot of competition. Maybe maybe it's my bias since I do a podcast. Okay, so I'm gonna uh, play this for you, and then I'll, I'll let you answer here. Hi, Anil and Paul. This is Megan Peters at UC Irvine. Thanks so much for giving me the chance to ask some questions. What do you see are the greatest challenges in public outreach about consciousness science right now? And uh, relatedly, what do you think are some of the most promising approaches to solving those challenges? Hello, Megan. How nice to hear from you. And um, yeah, it's a a good question. Of course, um, Megan is a, a colleague and friend of mine who's doing brilliant work in metacognition and consciousness. And I think she's been on your podcast too. I think I remember she has, yeah. hearing it. It was a great episode. The main challenge from my perspective is, I think there are two challenges. The first is probably common to a lot of public communication of, of science in general, which is how do you express things accessibly and clearly without oversimplifying? That's mm. just a hard balance to find but it's a possible balance to find and the approach to that is just continually trying to refine the way you put things the examples that you might use the metaphors that you might use i'm always worried that i've oversimplified that i've misrepresented others opinions or misrepresented the literature in general 
it's hard to get away from that worry, uh, but you can't cover everything. You can't caveat absolutely everything either. You have to have the message you want to convey, but make sure that the evidence, the arguments that you're resting that message on, that they stand up. I think that's one general challenge for public communication of science. The other one for, for consciousness is an amazing thing about consciousness, working on consciousness, is really that it's, a, it's, it's not hard to get people motivated by the topic <laughs> itself. People just come to the table with a strong a priori interest in consciousness usually. And a priori view on it, right? <laughs> well, that's yeah. right. Yeah, they also come with very strong opinions about certain things about consciousness, you know, what it is, what the definition is, what something like free will might mean, and I'm sure we'll talk about that too. So here the challenge is how to actually engage with pre-existing views rather than just try to dump my own views into somebody else's mind, how to turn it from a lecture into a dialogue. Hmm. All right. Very good. Well, I don't want to bury the lead anymore. So um, I'm going to start actually by reading a quote from your book that is kind of the crux of uh, the of your message. And then I'll let you unpack it and, 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 you know, get, kind of give an overview of, of your views uh, before we move on. Like I said, I have, um, I have a host of my own questions, of course, way more than we'll get to. But then uh, I, I got a lot of um, questions from from people like Megan. So we'll be hearing from her again. So I want to make sure that uh, we, we get to those. Okay, so uh, this is from the book. This is about two thirds of the way through, maybe. This for me is the true ground state of conscious selfhood, a formless, shapeless, control oriented, perceptual prediction about the present and future physiological condition of the body itself. This is where being you begins. And it is here that we find the most profound connections between life and mind between our beast machine nature and our conscious self. So uh, I don't know how, if you feel that that kind of encapsulates the whole message, but there's a lot to unpack there as well. So I'm going to let you have the floor. Well, great. There is a lot to unpack there because that's, in a way, that's the culminating <laughs> statement for the book's main argument. So I don't want to try and explain the whole book in, in, in unpacking that, no. that summary. But I think what's important about it is is the first thing I say about it is this wasn't really the idea that I set out with at the beginning. This idea that this ground state of self is is in a predictive, control-oriented perception about the physiological condition of the body and its trajectory. That's something that that came as I followed the thread of ideas over the years. And I think that's one of the rewarding things also about writing the book. It wasn't that it was just putting down all the ideas I already had. The writing of the book was an extremely, for me, by turns frustrating and challenging, but also rewarding way of pulling all the different threads uh, and weaving them together into something uh, that was new to me as well by the time I'd finished writing it. And this is particularly true in this connection between life and consciousness. So, the idea here is that I started to think many, many years ago about perception as this form of prediction about the causes of sensory signals. This is not a new idea. This goes back to Hermann von Helmholtz in the 19th century. People talk about it in terms of predictive coding, predictive processing, active inference, all these related ideas that see perception as an inside-out, top-down construction rather than an outside-in, bottom-up 
reading out of the world around us. The key part of that story for me was that the content of what we perceive, the nature of it, the, the character of the different perceptual experiences that we have should relate to the kinds of predictions that the brain is making about the sensory signals. So visual experiences have a particular character because the brain is making predictions about how visual signals relate to behavior, what happens when we move our eyes, for instance, these sorts of things. But the brain is also dealing with perception and control of the body. And the body is as remote to the brain as the outside world in, in, in the fundamental sense that it has no direct access to what's going on in the body. It still has to infer what's going on in the body uh, on the basis of noisy and ambiguous sensory signals. So there's this process, or the argument is there's this process of predictive perception about the interior of the body. But experiences of the interior of the body, they aren't like visual experiences. They don't have colors and shapes and mm -hmm. locations in space. They have valence. Things are good or bad or likely to be good or bad in the future. And so the idea to connect the two kinds of experiences is, is that, well, the predictions that are involved in perceiving the interior of the body have a different function. Instead of figuring out where things are to a first approximation, they're about controlling and regulating things. That's why we have brains in the first place, to keep the body alive. And so if a prediction is being used for control, and there's a whole literature from cybernetics and control engineering and now the free energy principle and active inference that tells us that to control something, you need to be able to have a good predictive model of it. Hmm. Well, then the character of the resulting experience can be understood as, as emerging from or relating to that control-oriented function. So this is a good, for me, handle on why self-related experiences feel differently from, let's say, visual experiences of the outside world. And it underwrites this close link between life and mind, because now these very basic experiences of just being a living organism, and here's where I do talk a little bit vaguely about the phenomenology, the experiential character of, of this. What, what really is the base level of being a self? It's not the identity that you have with the name and a set of memories. It's not really even the experience of what object in the world is my body. There is, I think, for me, this very deep-lying sense of just being a living organism. And that, and this is the proposal, it's not something that I can justify on the basis of, of clear experiments or data, that that, that mm -hmm. experience, that basal experience, emerges from the, the role of the brain's predictive mechanisms in regulating the body and then everything else flows from that so all the perceptual mechanisms that are, are are now dealing with the outside world or with the body as an object in the world all have their evolutionary developmental and kind of moment to moment functions being grounded in this basic imperative to stay alive i mean this is not a completely new idea either, right? I mean, it's got lots of resonances with people like Antonio Damasio, uh, with Mark Soames, with Lisa Barrett, um, with Evan Thompson. There's lots of, of, of rich territory, rich literature exploring these life-mind connections. But my way of doing it is to emphasize predictive perception and predictive processing as the common thread. Yeah, so the, um, 
I mean, there's a lot of different ways to go here. One, one of the things that, you know, so you talk about uh, the possibility, you end up talking in the book about the a possibility of AI having consciousness, and maybe we'll come on to that later. But one of the things that I have, as my own thinking about consciousness has very minimally developed over the years, it seems, because I have, I've not thought nearly as deeply about these sorts of things, is that I do appreciate the uh, richness of the, you know, the feeling of identity of having a self that you're saying, you know, and the narrative self and and personal identity self, uh, there's a certain richness there that you're saying doesn't need to be accompanied in the um, uh, predicting our life control setting processes to stay alive. And so then that, of course, uh, makes you wonder about all the different animals and organisms and their level of you know, I, I suppose minimally they would need to have a predictive uh, mechanism to, you would say, that um, the conscious experience is somehow situated in that predictive uh, cognitive mechanism. Uh, but and, and you write about, of course, you write about animals in the book, but um, maybe you can just describe what it means you think for the, the experiences of other animals. Uh, and then we'll come on to the experiences of other people as well in a moment. Yeah, I think that that's a very rich topic. It's a very important topic as well because one of the main implications of a of a well grounded science of consciousness is to make informed judgments about the potential for suffering, the potential space of experiences of non human animals. And there is an inevitable tension here because so far we we just lack uh, a consensus view on the sufficient mechanisms for consciousness. We, there are competing theories. We have different ideas. Um, so at the moment, inferences about other animals are still using humans or mammals as a benchmark. You know, we, we take what we know from humans. We extend that to other animals, which um, we, well, mammals, for instance, have pretty much the shared neural mechanisms that we know are important in humans. And then how far out can we go? This is a strategy that's hard to get around. But of course... There's also the, the recognition that the way we are conscious, the way we experience having a self is not the only way. It seems to be all bound together. So this is the thing that the experience mm. of being a human self is that we have all these different aspects of it, a name and identity over time, experiences of agency, of free will, of, of seeing the world from a first person perspective, of having a body, of being a body, of being the seat of emotions, all these things seem unified but of course they aren't neurology and psychiatry tells us that they aren't and various experiments tell us that they aren't as well and if they aren't necessarily unified then there are different ways they might come together in different people but also in different species so the space of other minds is is very large and what can we say about that space well we can't have the experiences of another species or indeed of, of another person. I mean, this is a very old point in philosophy, Thomas Nagel, what is it like to be a bat? But that doesn't mean we can't understand from a third-person perspective something about what those experiences might be like. If I can characterize, for instance, what the difference is between a visual experience and an emotional experience in terms of different kinds of predictions, then that provides a language for thinking about other kinds of experience too how they may relate to the experiences we're familiar with, even though we can't instantiate those experiences ourselves. The harder question to answer is how far does the magic circle extend? You know, when does sentience gray out into nothingness in the animal kingdom? That's, that's really, really 
difficult. I don't think there's a, you know, a sensible way to, to answer that. There is something yeah. about level of complexity of the nervous system that, that seems to me has to be important. Seems unlikely to me that C. elegans, you know, this, this tiny worm with, um, 302 neurons is, is conscious. But maybe that's just a species-specific bias on my part. I mean, we know that number of neurons per se doesn't matter. The cerebellum has three quarters of the neurons in, in the brain and doesn't seem much involved in consciousness, if mm -hmm. at all, in humans. So all these, these intuitions that we have have to be very careful about the extent to which they're based on a sense of anthropocentrism, of human exceptionalism. Uh, and that's the tension at the heart of thinking about animal consciousness for me. Poor, poor C. elegans always always gets shafted with regard to uh, admitting consciousness in the in C. elegans. All right, so uh, I'm in danger of just going, you know, down the rabbit hole on my own question. So here's what we're gonna do: we're gonna we're gonna go through the rest of these uh, questions, and because you already mentioned some things that are related to some of the questions, and we can just use it as a jumping off point to talk about you know things that you that you write about in the book. So uh, here's Megan's next question. Anil, you've described the real problem of consciousness as being separate from the hard problem of consciousness. So related to this idea, do you believe that discovering and characterizing something like a quality space, like Rosenthal's quality space, and similar kinds of uh, writings and efforts by Hakuan Lao and now Tsuchiya and others, do you think this is truly going to be enough? Do you think that this is going to make the hard problem truly just disappear if we reach a relatively full description of this quality space? And relatedly, uh, what do you see as the biggest challenges in making the leap from a causal description, like a quality space, a full quality space description, to a true explanation of consciousness? Do you think that this distinction is also going to disappear as we get closer to such a full description? I told you, Megan really went after it. Yeah, I know. And I like the way she, her questions always have a and relatedly halfway yes. through. Um, <laughs> I know. <laughs> that's, yeah. that's when I start to worry. <laughs> so, but it is a very good question, of course. Thank you again, Megan. Um, yeah, I talk about the real problems quite informally, really, because it's very related to other approaches that I'm sure Megan knows. But, but more generally, for, for the listeners, these are approaches like neurophenomenology that traces back to Francisco Varela. Uh, this general idea of instead of trying to explain how it comes about that any physical system could be identical to or give rise to a conscious experience, this is the hard problem of consciousness, broadly speaking, from, from David Chalmers, how consciousness happens to be part of a, this physicalist, materialist picture of the universe, um, mm -hmm. or what's the relationship between conscious experiences and stuff in the universe. And the real problem is saying, well, let's not address that directly. Let's go after it indirectly. Let's try to explain, predict, and control the properties of conscious experiences in terms of things happening inside brains and bodies. So these uh, quality spaces that Megan mentioned, this is one aspect of doing that. It's a way of trying to organize different kinds of experiences according to metrics, you know, how similar they are, how different they are, how they relate to each other. And you could think of that as, as very related to this idea we were talking about a bit earlier, that different kinds of predictions can go along with different kinds of experiences. 
It's trying to, they're, mm. they're both different ways of talking about how we organize a space of experiences and relate it to mechanisms. Um, this, by the way, is not the same as David Chalmers' easy problems, which are questions about how the brain works when you just basically take consciousness entirely out of the picture and just talk about function, uh, behavior, and so on. So I do think it's a useful middle ground. It's a pragmatic way to approach a science of consciousness. The question is, will it be enough? And this is a tricky question to, to answer. From where we are now, with the tools and with the concepts that we have now, I think it would be very hubristic to say it definitely will be enough. But I also think it will be disappointingly or, or un, unwarrantedly pessimistic to say it definitely won't be enough. I think that is a case that can be made for a healthy uh, agnostic optimism about it. And the reason I say that is because the history of science just gives us plenty of examples where things that have seemed mysterious no longer seem that mysterious because of insights that we have, uh, because of a sort of real problem-like approach. The classic example, of course, is the study of life, that we, instead of looking for one mm -hmm. eureka solution, a spark of life in Elan Vital, biologists characterize the different properties of life and explain them as a related set of problems. And the hard problem of life wasn't solved, it was dissolved. But life is not the same thing as consciousness. So that's why I can't be fully optimistic about it, because you can still agree objectively on the data about life, whereas the data about consciousness right. are intrinsically private and subjective. It makes it harder, but in my view, it doesn't make it impossible. And so what will the trajectory of this approach look like? The, the thing that I actually think is most likely to happen and will be most explanatory in the end to Megan's, the second part of Megan's question is when our whole idea of what explaining <laughs> consciousness uh, should achieve actually changes. You know, we, we, when we set out the problem that we think we're setting out to solve at the beginning turns into a slightly different problem. And we see consciousness as continuous with the rest of nature and we worry a bit less about how to explain this apparent division between the mental and the physical. A final point on this is that we sometimes ask too much of a science of consciousness. And th this gets at Megan's second point when I think she asked, you know, what would count as a true explanation of consciousness? Right. And there's a lot, there's a lot under that. What does she really mean? What is, what, what, what should a true well, explanation actually mean? In, in philosophy of science, this is a complicated question. Yeah, I was going to ask you, um, part of my own questions was, you know, when we get there to enough, I'm using air quotes, is it going to feel intuitively uh, satisfying or, you know, the, because of uh, theories like integrated information theory that you kind of just have to accept that there's a complexity and there's a number and it doesn't feel quite intuitively satisfying. But I don't know if that's what she means by enough, but I was going to ask you anyway, if getting there, wherever there is, if that will feel, but, you know, because I'm not even sure we understand life <laughs> yet. I agree that the um, the mis the mystery of it, Elan Vital, has dissolved because we started asking different questions. And I agree with you that we we're, we will need to shift our approach and shift the conceptual um, uh, approach to to understand what it is. But um, and yet, I don't know if it'll feel intuitively uh, satisfying. Right. So when it comes to life, that's a really important point you you made because indeed, not everything is understood 
but the sense of mystery about things being ex- explicable has dissolved, at least for most people. And I think that's a good indication of, of a mature science of X. It doesn't have to explain absolutely every detail, but the sense of deep mystery about details being explicable should have dissolved. And when it comes to consciousness, it's sort of often put the other way around that people might say things like, well, let's assume we can explain every single detail. Wouldn't there still be a sense of big mystery? Um, this is an odd way to put it because even the premise is not necessarily something that, that we should take as a, as a necessary criterion. The important thing is, does the overall sense of mystery dissolve? And then I think in terms of the standard criteria that we apply to scientific explanations, can we ac- explain a phenomenon? Now, this it's tricky, but here I might say this is back to the realm of different kinds of predictions and qualia spaces, whether they're the sort that David Rosenthal and Megan and Hakuan Lau talk about or the qualia spaces and integrated information theory. It's another way of thinking about that. Um, explanation, prediction. Can you predict when a particular kind of experience will occur? And control, can you intervene in a mechanism to bring about particular kinds of experiences in, in systematic ways? If you can do that, then you're doing pretty well. Will this be intuitively satisfying? We'd like to think so, but I don't think there's any guarantee that it, that it will be. And of course, whether something like integrated information theory is intuitively satisfying really depends on who you are. It's Firstly, it's a very complicated right. uh theory and if when you do delve into the math there are some beautifully intuitively appealing points about it but there are things that challenge intuition as well the key point though is that we tend to require or or smuggle in this criterion for intuitive satisfaction when it comes to consciousness in a way that we don't for other areas of science like we we know that quantum mechanics is just makes no sense it makes no sense, whichever interpretation <laughs> of quantum mechanics you, you tend to favor. None of them right. make any sense at all. Uh, but it's a beautifully successful science. It's not a complete science, but it's a beautifully successful science. Does it have to be intuitively satisfying? I think we smuggle that into consciousness. or so We feel that that has to play out, partly because we ourselves are conscious. We're trying to explain us. And that think leads us to ask different things from a science of consciousness where the scientific method may not justify us asking those things. I think it means that we need to use quantum mechanics to um, situate consciousness in microtubules, right? Oh, do not go there. <laughs> no, we're not going Let's there. not go there. Okay, where we are going is, is the next question. You might recognize this chap. Hi Arnold, it's Steve Fleming here. Congratulations on the book. It's um, a fantastic achievement. So my question for you is about how we should think about the contents of consciousness within the beast machine framework. In biological agents such as ourselves, there are some things we're aware of and other processes or neural representations that we're not aware of. And for me, modeling this kind of distinction pushes you towards a more cognitive or higher order model of how consciousness works, even when we're thinking about embodied living systems. I suspect you disagree, though, and would love to hear your thoughts. Enjoy your chat with Paul, and I'll look forward to listening. Another friend of yours. Another friend of mine. Hello, Steve. Thank you for the question and thank you for your book as well. Reverse congratulations to you on Know Thyself. It's a, it's a brilliant book. 
Um, and very much enjoyed it. It's another good question, of course. And the answer is, I think I, I just, I quite agree actually with, with Steve, probably more than he was expecting. If you take as one of the core methods, and it is one of the core methods in consciousness science to contrast with conscious versus unconscious perceptions, um, then you're, you're maybe drawn to the cognitive processes that mark that distinction. I mean, they can, they, but they can play out in different ways. They could be on some theories of consciousness, like the favored higher order type theories of, of Steve and, and Megan and, and Haquan Lau. The difference is in the kind of higher order representation that in some sense looks down at other processes going on in lower order perceptual circuits, whether they're to do with the, the world or the body. But these differences could also be in these lower order circuits as well that explain the difference between conscious and unconscious perception. I think this is a very valid approach. I think there is, as Steve will know, there's still a surprising de degree of controversy about whether unconscious perception really exists at all as, as a phenomenon. The, the closer you look, sometimes it seems to go away entirely. And it's also a methodology that is, it works better for some kinds of experiences than others. It works to the extent that it does work, it works really well for extra receptive perceptions, vision, audition, things like that. You can, we have all these uh, repertoire, this toolbox of masking techniques that we can use to at least approximate this conscious versus unconscious uh, content divide. These toolboxes just they don't apply, they're, 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 or they're certainly not as readily available for studying processes about the perceptual regulation and experience of these deep levels of self like emotion a lot of discussion goes into questions about are there such things as unconscious emotions what would that mean is there an unconscious mood it strikes me as completely plausible that there are some aspects of the brain's regulating of the body that do not arise into our conscious experiences they're, they're very basic homeostatic reflexes that don't seem to shape conscious contents in terms of moods, emotions, or anything else. And there are others that do. So the question for me is, is more, it's a very open question. Like what, at what, what level of perceptual regulation or perceptual inference are there corresponding aspects of conscious content? And at some level there aren't, and at some level there are. I think this is this is likely to apply, although you know, maybe less so to the body. But it's just a much harder question to get at experimentally, and this doesn't mean that we just give up. It just means that it, what what are the other methods for thinking about consciousness uh, without using these contrasts between con conscious and unconscious perceptions? And this is where I do get drawn to these ideas more of explaining the phenomenological properties of a conscious experience that mm. is there rather than worrying about when it is or when it isn't and what marks that specific difference. Do you think that there, um, <clears throat> since the majority, the vast majority of consciousness neuroscience has focused on perception and specifically visual perception, that that has biased our intuitions about what might be needed uh, in the perception predict in, you know, higher order 
toward higher order thought type of um, uh, approaches. Uh, because and the other side of that coin is: Do you think that processes like self maintenance and uh, life processes that you're focused on have been underappreciated? That's a bit of a judgment call, isn't it? I mean, the the, the focus on vision is is I think very sensible in many ways. It's if you if you think back to the early uh, 1990s when Francis Crick and Christoph Koch were talking for the first time about the pragmatic strategy of looking for neural correlates of consciousness, they were focusing on vision. And I mean, this is a bit of historical reconstruction, but I imagine one good reason for doing so was just that you could do experiments that way. You could build on a whole literature of psychophysics to actually do those experiments. And it could just be a more compelling argument to the rest of the community in psychology and neuroscience that there was a reasonable way to study consciousness. So I think if Crick and Koch had started off by talking about the deep, ex- deep embodied experiences. It would have been much a, a much harder sell because you you can't go and do your experiment the next day. You can't do binocular rivalry and go, oh look at this. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So there are good reasons to focus on vision and visual experiences are well characterized. The level of phenomenology we have all these super interesting aspects of it. What's what's the relationship between central vision and peripheral vision? Uh, and there's a lot known about the visual cortex too. It's a, it's a relatively well understood part of the brain in terms of its organization. So these are all the good reasons. I don't know if a study or if the, this, this bias towards vision also bias towards higher order theories. I think, I don't think that's true actually, because there, there are people like Ned Block also deeply rooted in the visual tradition who put the opposite perspective and say, oh, look, you know, visu- hmm. visual experience gives us a compelling case to think that our experience, the, the nature of our experience is in fact more than we have higher order access to at any given time. And this debate rumbles on, I think, between phenomenal consciousness on the one side and access consciousness in, in very productive ways, actually. I think it's a, it's a really good debate. But yes, this focus does bias against uh recognizing i think these deep roots of all consciousness in the regulation of the body and as as we were discussing earlier it's not that these ideas weren't also there from the very beginning damasio one of the early pioneers of consciousness science too uh, said this very 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 clearly Uh, my old mentor gerald edelman also talks about the role of the body in, in consciousness. So it's been there all the time. Evan Thompson, Francisco Varela, the embodied mind. There are, there are very deep traditions that make this point, but they don't give you the experimental availability that the focus on vision did. Yeah, I mean, the vast majority of the predictive processing framework is um, focused on vision as well, because everything in neuroscience, the vast majority is focused on vision. But one of your main moves was to point that predictive processing um, inference process to uh, bodily processes. So um, that was, do you you think that that was a key connection that you made that allowed you to start thinking about these things? Yeah, actually I do. And I think, I mean, that idea was around at the time. So I think Lisa Barrett in particular had a very similar idea more or less at the same time. It's not a, it's not a massive leap at all. There'd been Again, a long history of, of thought in emotion that thought about emotions as cognitive appraisals of changes in physiological state. So there was already this sort of interpretive framework applied to thinking right. about emotions. Uh, but it was still in this 
this framework of a cognitive part of the brain and a non-cognitive part of the brain and one appraising the other. And the simple idea was just to say, okay, look, in predictive processing, where you have this general principle that perceptions depend on the whole ensemble of, of top-down predictions about causes of sensory signals at multiple levels, without any clear, bright line between the cognitive and the non-cognitive. Well, that that just provides a, a, a modern gloss, a predictive processing gloss, on these older ideas of how emotions are formed. They now become multi-level, multimodal predictions about the, the causes of sensory signals, but now the sensory signals are the sensory signals that come from within the body, interoceptive processes. And just making that connection is a start to then, for me, the really important part of that was thinking about these predictions as having different functions in the two cases. So we already mentioned this, that vision to a first approximation, perceptual predictions try to figure out what's there. Interoceptive predictions try to control and regulate. Uh, we're going to continue on with Megan number three, and then we'll have one more, Megan. Okay. Let's see if there's an and relatedly halfway through. Do you think that there is a conceptual distinction that can be drawn between the qualitative character of an experience and the content of that experience? So I'm not talking about level here, but more like the qualitative nature itself. So uh, in other words, is phenomenal character like a substrate or foundation on which the content will rest? Or is the qualitative character fully inextricable from the content? Does that make sense? And do you want to answer? I'll try to answer, though I think this is more of an extended discussion than a simple question, because it, it, it turns on what precisely is meant by phenomenal character and, and content. So I think I'll make up an example, and it might not be the kind of thing that Megan has in mind, but vision has a phenomenal character. It has a spatial organization. Objects have the property of objecthood. They seem to have locations in space and three-dimensional um, volumetric extensions. And then within that, against that background, we have specific experiences. I see a cup. I see a laptop computer. I see uh, another house across the street. So are these the same thing? No, they're not the same thing. Um, but they are, to use Megan's words, I would think inextricably intertwined. The reason I can experience an object as having the property of objecthoodness, as having volumetric extension, as having a back, even though I can't directly see the back, that to me does rest on the phenomenal character of visual experiences in general, that they have this spatiality and volumetric extension in a way that, let's say, emotional experiences do not. So... This is really off the top of my head now, I have to say, but thinking about it, it seems that the two aspects of conscious experiences co-determine each other. Uh, mm. And I, I wonder whether there's any, if you subtract out all the, all the possible contents, do you have anything left? Is there some sort of raw phenomenal character to a modality? I think actually probably, probably not. Probably there's, there, there's some, even the experience of nothing is a sort of specific content against that kind of phenomenal background. But but here I am, I am speculating, and um, this is something, yeah, Megan, we should definitely talk about more. It's a very interesting <laughs> question. All right, more in public. 
Okay, do you want to do the drum roll or should I? Here comes, here comes the last question. Number four from Megan Peters. Regarding the measure of Lempel-Ziv complexity, would you say it is a measure of conscious level only or is it a measure of the complexity or richness of a conscious experience that can be held in awareness if that awareness exists to begin with? That's another very good question on the Megan Peters show. So we have this measure of Lempel-Ziv complexity. This is, just to summarize it for, for people, this is turns out to be quite a robust measure of brain dynamics that can be used to distinguish between different global conscious states like sleep anesthesia, the vegetative states, and in a paper that we did with uh, in collaboration with Imperial College, the psychedelic state too. And what Lempel's of complexity measures very broadly is the diversity of different patterns in a signal. So if you apply it to, let's say, EEG in the brain, the brain's electrical activity, the higher the Lempel's of complexity, the more diverse the activity patterns are. Uh, and the way it works is it measures how compressible the data are. So it's the same algorithm, roughly, that's used to compress digital photos into JPEG files. So if you just have a photo of a featureless blue sky, it's very easy to compress it um, because all the pixels are more or less the same. But if you have actually just white noise, visual snow, you can't compress it at all because you have to specify every pixel in, in every place. So the levels of complexity of a visual snow is really high of a featureless blue skies is very low. And the finding is that as you index through these global states of consciousness, the level of or the Lempel-Ziv complexity goes down when consciousness fades away. Uh, so hold on, have I got that the right way around? Yes, it goes down. The brains is less diverse. It becomes more predictable as you as you lose consciousness, as consciousness is lost, the perhaps surprising thing, and it was surprising to us, this was an exploratory study, was that in the psychedelic state, it goes the the other way around. So uh, the brain becomes more diverse, less predictable in the psychedelic state than in the baseline of, of normal waking. When, certainly when we did this study, this was the first time we'd seen uh, this metric go above the level of mm. the baseline waking state usually goes below when you lose consciousness in one way or the other. Now, having explained that, I'll try and remember what Megan's good question was, which was something, it was like, is it really a metric of the level of consciousness in the sense of this distinction between wakeful awareness and anesthesia and drowsiness and all these things? Or is it indexing the richness of experience uh, that's possible in each of these states. I can't. I'm not sure if I'm recollecting the question quite accurately. I could. I, pl would you? Do you want me to play it again? Play it, um, let's play it again. It out. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Or is it a measure of the complexity or richness of a conscious experience that can be held in awareness if that awareness exists to begin with? That last part gets me too. So getting back to. So with that background about Lempel's of complexity in mind, let's let's return to Megan's question, which was, is it a measure of the level of consciousness? Is that just what it is, this measure of the difference between sleep and wakefulness? Or is it a measure of the richness of experiences that can be held in mind when consciousness is already there? I don't think it's either of those things, really. I mean, the, the, 
Lampel-Ziv complexity just is what it is. It's a measure of the diversity of the neural dynamics. Now, quite what that relates to, it's it's a bit of both. It's it's an interesting and open question. Um, it's clearly not simply a measure of conscious level for the simple point that there probably isn't just one scale of conscious level. There's a nice paper by by Adrian Owen and Tim Bain and, and Jakob Hohe, I think, just looking at multidimensional conceptions of, of conscious level. It's not it's probably not as simple as it just being one point on a on a linear scale. Um, there is certainly something about signal diversity, lempel ziv complexity that tracks conscious level across many of these dimensions of conscious level uh, but i wouldn't say it's identical to that thing also because when you lose consciousness you still you know your brain still has some degree of, of dynamical activity there's still some values of lempels of complexity going on i think the more interesting question is indeed does it index something about the richness of experiences that are possible in in different states and here the psychedelic application is informative because i think it's misleading to say that the psychedelic state is a higher state of consciousness although you know newspapers were tempted to report the finding that way uh, <laughs> if you took lempels of complexity as just a measure of conscious level that's the conclusion you would draw it goes up so psych psychedelic state is a higher state of consciousness and sleep is a lower one but i think it's what about on speed or something well, I think I, I, very good questions, and I think um, I think Daniel Bohr is is beginning to do some work on on looking at lempels of complexity across a range of different conditions mm. now. Uh, but it seems to me a more honest description of the psychedelic state, not that it's a higher state on some single scale, but that it's an experientially more diverse state, less constrained state. There are other theories that suggest something like this. The uh, the Rebus theory of Robin Gehart Harris and Carl Friston relaxed beliefs, um, sort of relaxed priors in a predictive processing framework. That, so I think there's at least a, a, a fairly informal way where you can say that the increased diversity or lower predictability of brain dynamics in the psychedelic state goes along with the somewhat freewheeling nature of perceptual experience and ego dissolution mixture of experiences of self and the world that often characterizes the psychedelic state. That's probably a better way to think of it. But the lempels of complexity measure itself, I think, has to be recognized that it's a pretty brute force measure. I mean, it's not that sophisticated. The, right. And this is a real challenge in, in developing measures like this. It tends to be that deliberately oversimplified metrics like lempels of complexity have empirical traction. But as you make a measure more sort of theoretically sophisticated, like one of the earliest things that I remember doing was this uh, measure of causal density, which is supposed to be a, a more principled measure of brain complexity than lempels of complexity. It's a little bit in common with measures of integrated information in the sense that it's it's low both for completely random and for completely ordered processes. Uh, but these more sophisticated measures just tend to not perform very reliably on empirical data. You know, you get numbers, but they're just sort of all over the place often, and they're very sensitive to the to small differences in, in the data. And so they're not yet that useful. I think that's the real challenge 
is developing measures that have the empirical traction of simple metrics like Lempel-Ziv, but have uh, that rest on more interesting, more, more deeper theoretical principles that that will allow us to answer Megan's question in a much more satisfactory way. This goes back to the you know the brain is a complex system, and uh, you know whether it's going to feel intuitively satisfying when we have a good enough explanation of consciousness. Because um, I mean, you know, modern science is still grappling with complexity, even though you're talking about measures of complexity, obviously. But uh, this is within systems where we still don't know what's actually important. We don't know all of the pieces potentially that are important to even test for empirically, right? So, uh, I mean, you're measuring these processes, but we might not have the whole story of what is important in in that complex uh, realm. Now I'm just kind of drooling out no, you, and, and not making any well, sense you're perhaps, absolutely but. right and i mean there's something completely right so it's, that's that's one thing what's the what's the appropriate granularity so we, we have one problem which is we don't yet have the neuroimaging methods to give us both high time and space right. resolution and global coverage even if we did we don't really know what's the appropriate granularity to to look at brain dynamics or which levels of granularity are useful to look at brain uh, dynamics. We assume sort of, is it neurons or collections of neurons, whatever. Um, it's, you know, it's not just like voxels. That's pretty arbitrary, right? That's just what an fMRI scanner can, can resolve. Um, and also the, the, there's just, I think, a need for exploring different kinds of measures that can characterize the behavior of complex systems in general. And this mm. goes back to, the, I think, a theme that we've had throughout this conversation, which is, is mapping between mechanism and experience going to be enough? Is it going to be intuitively satisfying? And one thing that speaks to that is, well, how do we construct these mappings? If we just develop correlations, like say, there's a correlation between you being conscious of a house and these brain areas being active. This is never going to be that either intuitively satisfying or that explanatorily powerful right it's a correlation but we although this identifying of neural correlates is important it's just the starting point and there are much more sophisticated ways to build bridges between mechanism and experience quality spaces different kinds of prediction uh, complexity measures and one of the things that uh, with colleagues at Sussex and London and Cambridge now that that I'm particularly interested in is this old bugbear of emergence. Uh, how do we uh -oh. characterize emergence in complex yep. systems and what might, uh, an, as, as a well-grounded but an applicable measure of emergence, tell us about consciousness? People often want to steer well clear of this because there's a lot of rubbish, you know, spoken when people bring the concept of emergence together with consciousness. Generally, again, thinking that the two things are quite spooky, so they probably have to be related. Uh, but there are sensible ways to think about emergence too. There are sensible ways in which the brain acts as a whole, yet it contains many distributed parts. In, and there are sensible ways that a flock of birds looks to be like a flock of birds, even though it's not identical to the behavior of any individual bird. Coming up with uh, you know, sort of right set of mathematical tools to identify and characterize emergence it's not going to solve the problem of consciousness whether it's the hard problem or the real problem 
but it will give us a different perspective, a different way of relating mechanism to experience. And I don't know what that will provide ultimately, but it, it might again get to Megan's question about what are these measures telling us about phenomenology? Anil, you, you uh, actually, you, we've talked about psychedelics a little bit. You actually write in the book about, of course, the, your research on psychedelics, but then your own personal experience. I don't know if you're revisiting or if this was a first time experience for you. I remember trying to explain to my father, driving through the backwoods of Texas, what an, uh, an acid trip felt like. Uh, of course, I was 17 or so. Um, and, you know, I, I haven't done psychedelics in a long time. Do I need to uh, revisit this as an adult, as, a, as an old man like I am? Well, Thomas Metzinger once said on another podcast, I think with Sam Harris, that there are, there are serious consciousness scientists and there are non-serious consciousness scientists. Uh-oh. Uh, some, something like that. And oh. so you make of that what you will. My description in the book was was from a, a relatively recent one. I grew up in South Oxfordshire in the UK. And, and I don't know, I mean, my, my, with hindsight, fairly sheltered upbringing there didn't at least provide any opportunities that I found for uh, experimenting with psychedelics at, at the time. So, yeah, when I uh, decided to try them, it was from the perspective of someone who was already very interested in consciousness, its brain basis, and what psychedelics might uh, might tell us about that. Yeah, okay, I'll, I'll leave it to the reader to read your descriptions in the book, but it sounded like a, um, a good experience. I had a, a, couple, a couple unexple- uh, unpleasant experiences, um, very vivid, vividly unpleasant, but um, that might speak to my age then and insecurities and uh, who knows. Well, I think and this is, I do want to be careful about this because I think there's quite a lot of boosterism around psychedelics at the moment as well. Oh, both yeah. for its, yeah. uh, you know, there, there is a huge amount of clinical potential and I'm, I'm fully behind efforts to conduct clinical research into that, into the merits of or the potential for, for clinical treatments of, especially in the domain of psychedelic assisted psychotherapy. Uh, but, at the same time, they're not a panacea. They're not a magic bullet. People do and can have uh, adverse experiences. And that's not simply a matter of age. That's you know, Sometimes they just happen. It's a matter of set and setting as, as well. So I'm, I'm slightly concerned yeah. that the pendulum is swinging too far in the other direction. But there's no doubt in my mind that they are not only potentially clinically very, very useful, but as a tool for consciousness science, they have extraordinary value because you can go in you can make a very simple pharmacological manipulation that we know uh, pretty well at the low level what happens we know the which receptors are affected we know where these receptors are roughly in the brain these serotonin uh, 5-HT2A receptors and then we get these very reliable and very dramatic changes in the nature of conscious experience and that does two things it firstly tells us that the base of possible experiences that we as humans can have is probably larger than we would realize without that. And it also just opens up this opportunity to say, okay, you change, uh, you change one very low level thing about the brain, experience changes in these dramatic ways. So what's going on in the middle? How are the global patterns of brain dynamics changing that explain why psychedelics have the effect that they have. And I think that's a really important intervention in a system is always a very valuable thing you can do when you try and explain its workings. So as I was going to start writing notes, 
Dr. Anil Seth suggests I get a new drug dealer, but no, that's not what you're... That is definitely not what I'm saying. (laughs) Okay. So um, before we move on, because I want to talk about free will and hopefully we'll have time um, for a a few other topics, but uh, another thing that you write about in the book, you know, somewhat um, related, I think actually it's physically near um, the psychedelics, are out-of-body experiences. Um, What you don't write about, uh, but I'm going to ask about, because at some point YouTube... Uh, decided that I really liked hearing people's vivid and, um, to them, extremely convincing near-death experience accounts where there's this commonality, right, where they're, you know, in the tunnel, they meet the usually the guy who brings them, you know, they, they feel a strong, strong spiritual presence with them that will guide them through, and they feel like they're there for a lifetime's uh, then they have to decide whether they're going to stay. You know, there's this very common narrative uh, that seems to go along with near-death experiences. And I'm just curious if you have thoughts, whether you you know, know any of those narratives or not, but uh, of what might be going on there. Yeah, you're right. I didn't, I didn't write about it. It's a bit of a can of worms. But I just actually, it brings up a common thread with the psychedelics, which is the danger of taking things as they seem as a reliable guide to to how things are so when i experienced psychedelics for me this was dramatic validation of a broadly materialist picture of the brain you know you change the brain and your experience Mm. changes what what could be more consonant with a materialist picture than that Uh, but it turns out in a study by by chris timmerman at, at, at in london at imperial that when he did a a large survey of people about how psychedelic experiences had affected their metaphysical beliefs about consciousness, for most people, it reinforced a more immaterial or dualistic perspective that, oh, consciousness is, hmm. must, must, can't be just what's going on in my brain because it changed so much and it was a sort of filter to a wider, open the filter to a wider universe. And I found this like very interesting, but I must admit slightly deflating that I thought, okay, the, the, I thought it would go the other way, but that was me just generalizing my own take on it. Um, and yeah. a similar thing plays out with out-of-body experiences and near-death experiences as well. So if you take a sort of realist view of the experiences you're having, then you reach quite metaphysically radical conclusions. Like, I experienced that my first-person perspective is now somewhere other than uh, in my head, between my eyes. It's, it's somewhere on the ceiling or it's nowhere at all. Um, if you take how things seem as how they are, conclusion, well, the soul or my conscious, the essence of my consciousness can in fact leave the body. Similar story with near-death experiences, right? You seem to be the point of, of ceasing to exist, yet all these all these things are happening. Natural conclusion is that there's something that persists beyond death of the body. There's some entering into a different realm, something like that. But these explanations, we should take people's descriptions of their experiences very seriously. And it's very interesting that there are all these commonalities in things like near-death experiences, like this, this sort of tunneling of the vision. But that doesn't mean that these experiences are direct reflections of what's actually happening in the universe. So there are very good reasons, to, for instance, to think of the tunneling of vision as, well, that's different parts of the visual cortex just shutting down 
according to pretty reliable patterns of blood flow. You know, you can sort of see, well, as, as blood flow declines, you're going to get peripheral vision falling away. Um, now, I don't know if that's demonstrably true, but it's certainly, for me, a more plausible experience than you are literally entering a tunnel of light to, to another realm. And the same goes for out-of-body experiences. For me, instead of demonstrating the reality that the soul can leave the body, it tells us a much more interesting story which is that the first person perspective yes. is not to be taken for granted it's a construction it's part of the act of perception and you know this fits along with plenty of other evidence that okay you can stimulate part of the brain as wilder penfield did back in the 1940s or 50s or whenever it was and transiently induce an out-of-body experience uh, tie it to the brain now that's would be strange to surmise that stimulating um part of the brain causes the soul to temporarily leave the body but it makes much more sense if you think of well you've disrupted the circuitry that is deciding that is inferring where in space the first person perspective is so i love all these all these examples but i think we just have to be careful about uh on the one hand respecting people's descriptions and also respecting what it means for them you know it's no good to if somebody's had a near-death experience is going to be one of the more meaningful experiences of their life yes. and it's just not right to go and say oh by the way no that's just your visual cortex uh, shutting down it means nothing you know that's not that's not helping anybody but neither should we take uh, them at face value there's no reason to take their explanations for what's going on as really what is actually going on i mean one of the compelling things about um, a high number of these stories is that they have felt that it is didn't wasn't didn't only feel real it was the most real thing they've ever felt and that after they have lost all fear of death because they have had this experience and it has really you know changed their life I would say in a good way I'd love to not fear death uh, it's not really the afterlife I fear it's the suffocation while i'm drowning you know the, the panic the, of my last moments right that's what i actually fear but um but it seemed to have had you know a benefit for a lot of people so i just it's, i find it interesting okay anil so uh let's talk about another interesting topic that has been a thorny issue in the history of philosophy and continues to be a thorny issue uh free will to which you devote a chapter in the book and Instead of asking you a particular question about free will, I'm going to just let you summarize uh, your position and account of, of free will, if you will. I will. And the first thing to, I want to say about it, it goes right back to the beginning of our conversation, because free will is not something I've written about in any scientific papers of mine. So, you know, but I thought I couldn't, I thought about it, and I couldn't have a book about the neuroscience of, of consciousness and, and self right. without discussing free will so his writing this chapter was uh, probably the most challenging chapter to write but also again the most rewarding because i was really figuring out what i thought about it and how justifiable those those thoughts were so what are these thoughts well discussions about free will get derailed in so many ways and whenever i give public talks about consciousness when free will comes up in the q a it's often the sign that okay we're done nothing else is going to come up now <laughs> we're, we're we're on the free will roller coaster and we're not getting off uh yep and there could be a number of reasons for this i think of all the aspects of selfhood that 
we cling to and that we have some just deep set resistance to their being explained in terms of science. Free will is probably uh, the most clingy. Like it's okay if I tell someone your experience of the world, this visual experience is a construction. It's like, oh, okay. But if you if you make the claim that no, you've, you, there is a real sense in which you don't have the free will you might think you have, that can be very personally disruptive. But that's not a good reason for there not being a good scientific mechanistic explanation of free will. And so what is that? Well, I think very much in tune with the rest of the book, that the right way to understand free will is as a kind of perception. Free will, experiences of free will arise in the field of consciousness, just as other experiences arise. Um, and the common lens that I apply to all of these experiences is a kind of perceptual inference. So what does that mean when it comes to, to free will? Well, firstly, it means that it's not consistent with this idea of, of a libertarian or spooky free will. You know, this idea that there is, in fact, some way in which an experience of free will, in virtue of the kind of experience that it is, swoops in and makes things happen that otherwise wouldn't happen. To me, that idea just makes no sense anyway. You yeah. know, that disrupts the co causal closure of the universe. It requires conscious experiences to have this spooky uh, causal power and you know, some kind of very savvy causal power as well that makes sure you do the thing that you <laughs> intervenes in the brain in exactly the right way to make stuff happen. <laughs> um, it's, it's just not the kind of free will that we should be wanting to, to preserve. It's got a lot of echoes of dualism, of, of an immaterial mind pulling strings in a material brain and, and body. Once you get rid of wanting to preserve that, then one source of debate in the, in the whole area just falls away, which is this debate between determinism and indeterminism in the universe. Like, does it matter if the world is completely deterministic or if there's a bit of chance here and there? No, it doesn't matter at all. It's a complete red herring. Why should it matter? Because the only reason you might want a little bit of indeterminacy is so that's where this spooky free will can come in and, and change the course yeah. of events. A bit of elbow room for, for something spooky to, to make its play. I don't think we need that, right? But you don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Uh, we have experiences of free will. And they mean something. We as organisms also make voluntary behaviors. You know, there are some things that we do, the causes of which are relatively immediately found in our environment, in the world around us. Typical example, you put your hand on a hot stove and you recoil. Uh, there's no experience of free will that goes along with that reflexive uh, um, recoil of, of, the heart, of the arm. That's involuntary though. You said, did you say... Sorry, did you yeah, say so that's, that's involuntary. No, that would be an example of an involuntary reflex, right? Contrast that with a voluntary action, like picking up this cup of tea and having a sip from it. Um, I decided to do that, and it felt like I decided to do that. There was a feeling of intention for me picking up that cup and a feeling of agency um, that accompanied the cup arriving at my mouth and me taking a sip from it. These are the sorts of things that characterize the feet, the experience of free will. In fact, I think there are three things. There's the experience that an action comes from within. There's the experience that 
the action is aligned with my beliefs and desires. You know, I want I wanted a sip of tea just then. And there's the feeling that I could have done otherwise. This is the really tricky one. There's there's the feeling that I might not have picked that cup up or I might have picked something else up. Seems to me that those are the three characteristics of, of experiences of free will. And I prefer to think of those characteristics in much the same way that I think of the perceptual experience of something like color. So we know color seems to exist in the real world. If I look out of the window now, I can see a gray sky. It's not really a color, but it, you know, it is bright and so gray sky. Yeah. Um, and it really seems to be that color, right? The, the color seems to exist as an objective mind-independent property of the world. But we know that's not true. We know don't need neuroscience. Newton, Cezanne all tell us that colors are constructed by the brain. Um, I think the same thing goes for our experiences of free will, right? An experience of free will has this metaphysically subversive content that it has causal power over events. So just as red things really seem to be red, the experience of a, of a freely willed action is that that experience somehow had causal agency in, in that action. Now, redness doesn't really exist in the world, but it's a very useful thing for the brain to construct. In the same exact way, these experiences of free will don't really have the causal power that they seem to have, but they're also very useful for the brain in very specific ways. And this chapter tries to tell the story of why that, why that's so. And this is building on work by people like Patrick Haggard and, and Mike Shadlin and, and, and others. Um, that I think a good way to think about why we experience voluntary actions as freely willed is so the brain can learn about what happened after them uh, and learn about their consequences. So the brain, the organism might do things differently the next time. You can't replay the same tape and get a different outcome. But the organism, I might sit down at the desk this time tomorrow and do another podcast. The universe will have changed. My brain will have changed from talking to you today. So if the experience of drinking tea went badly today, then I might have a glass of water tomorrow. That's a useful thing for the organism to have picked up on. And the way the organism can track those regularities in the world is by sort of labeling these voluntary actions with a particular kind of, of character. And that character is this character of counterfactuality, of internal origin, and of alignment with, with beliefs and desires. So there is free will in the sense that we have voluntary actions and they are lawfully and meaningfully associated with particular kinds of experiences. But we don't have the spooky kind of free will that just leaps into the brain from another dimension. Do you worry though, or have you had any feedback from people who might reply that you so even in the book you use free will in quotations because you know like like we were talking about earlier in the science of consciousness we have to reframe how we think about these things conceptually to actually get a grasp on them but one could respond that what i actually do care about is this uh what you're calling the spooky stuff i um and and by describing the phenomenology of it and our perception of the free will which might be satisfying causally uh, it doesn't satisfy my need and desire to feel at the helm of my own voluntary actions when what you're um, what you know what you're describing is my perception of a voluntary action but I wouldn't call that a voluntary action 
I would say I wasn't in control causally, right? Right. And I think this is the key point, right? Here's a situation where I do think it's a very good example of how the mystery that we started with productively changes. For me, this is a satisfying account of free will. Uh, it does everything it should do. And it makes sense to me as well. Your example of somebody who might respond, well, that doesn't feel right to me. That it doesn't feel like I'm in that kind of field doesn't explain the feeling that I am in control. Well, there's another, um, another issue that slipped in there, which is this idea that there is an I that is in control. And of course, uh -oh. <laughs> part of our conversation has been that you know, the self isn't this unique thing that, that sits behind the windows of the eyes peering out and that decides what to do and then contracts various muscles. The self is a kind of perception, whether it's this uh, perception of the body as a living organism, whether it's emotion, mood, first-person perspective. All of these things are aspects of perception too. So the experience of free will is not something that uh, a self has and uses in some way. It's just part of what the experience of being a self is. And again, there are clinical examples which show us that this aspect of selfhood can go away too. There's this condition of akinetic mutism where people specifically seem to lose the experience and ability to engage in voluntary behavior. But other aspects of their self might, might remain intact. For me, it's a very satisfying way, way to think of it. And in fact, it also doesn't, and here's, an, here's another really important point. It's not that this just leads me into an apathetic life that I think, okay, right, if free will is in fact a perception of voluntary action that's mainly useful for the future, then yeah, screw it. I, I don't actually have the ability to behave in the world as I, as, I, as I thought I did. No, of course. I still see red when I look out of the window and, and see surfaces with particular kinds of reflectances. I will still experience free will in the same way, and that is intrinsically coupled to, to my voluntary behavior for the reasons we've just been talking about. So it changes everything, but it also leaves the essential things completely unchanged, that I still go about my business in the same way as before. Looping back real quick to psychedelics, does the because psychedelics are often associated with the dissolution of the ego, uh, do you think that there is a connection, and I, I have no idea about this, a connection um, between someone who has experienced a dissolution of the ego through something like psychedelics and the acceptance of this account of free will as um, as satisfying. You'd like to think so. I mean, again, for me, it's incredibly it's incredibly compatible. Like the the sort of ego dissolution that goes along with with psychedelics is completely in line with thinking about free will as this kind of perception of of voluntary action oriented to the, to the future. Um, but I rather worry that uh, just as Chris Timmerman's study found that people who've taken psychedelics generally move to, away from a materialistic belief, they may also move right. away from the way I come think about free will as well. It depends on your starting point. It depends on where you're coming from, what the psychedelic yeah. experience is going to do to your beliefs about these things. All right. Uh, I'm aware of our time here and... Uh, one of the things that you talk about in your book that I, I guess because I've been thinking a lot about the relation between life and intelligence, and of course your book is about consciousness and life, and you write about how intelligence and consciousness uh, are not 
necessarily orthogonal, but they they aren't along the same axes. So I wondered, um, I kind of want to throw all these three in the bag uh, because I've come to appreciate intelligence. And I, I think the success of deep learning and computational neuroscience approaches uh, to mechanistic computational accounts of how minds and brains work has made me um, ironically appreciate other life processes, which is interesting because you, this is, you know, the, the focus of your uh, introspective inference where there are pre- there's predictive processing exactly on these life processes and uh, needing to control uh, the processes to stay alive. So, um, sorry, that was a, a huge mouthful, but I'm wondering if you can explain your view on the relationship of life, consciousness, and intelligence. Definitely. Just to clarify briefly, I talk about interoceptive inferences rather than introspective inferences. They're sort of you know, oh, different sorry. thing. I Inter- it's often yeah. confused, but just to make so introception being about perception of the body, introspection, thinking about your own thoughts very broadly. Uh, so life, consciousness, and, and intelligence. It is a it is a big bag. It's a, it's a mixed bag, and the theme of the book really has led me to recognize these deep connections between consciousness, especially conscious self, and life. You know the the claim, the primary claim being that we perceive ourselves and the world around us with, through, and because of our living bodies, and that all the predictive machinery that underpins all our experiences operates in in light of this primary biological imperative to stay alive another reason the life thing is critical here is because unlike a computer where you have a relatively sharp distinction between hardware and software and if you use a computational metaphor for the for the mind you tend to think of the brain as the hardware and the mind as the software and maybe if you write software in the right way does the right kind of information processing, which is a slippery term, uh, then consciousness will will arise. Um, if you think about living systems, there isn't such a sharp distinction between hardware and software or, or mindware and wetware. Uh, it's kind of just their hierarchical dependencies all the way down. I mean, this goes right back into literature that inspired me many years ago by Humberto um, Maturana about autopoiesis, and the the sort of the way in which cells uh, construct the components, their own components over time, they they self generating processes, um, and so this just this recognition that there is no clear line between mindware and wetware makes me very suspicious of the idea that consciousness is substrate independent that it could be easily run on a different thing because where does the substrate start and stop in a biological system and suspicious of the idea that consciousness is simply a matter of information processing because that tends to go along with Mm. substrate independence um, as well but what goes with if you but if you do think about consciousness in terms of information processing as something that might potentially be run on a on a computer with the right kind of software, that tends to get grouped with intelligence. And this this sort of often unstated assumption that a sufficiently intelligent computer will become conscious. That consciousness is a function, maybe a complicated function, but a function of intelligence in a substrate independent way. 
And I just think this is, this is based on also, it might be right. Like I cannot say that it's not right, but I just think it's based on a lot of questionable assumptions. There is for me no good reason to think that consciousness is substrate independent. And at least one interesting reason to think that it might not be this lack of clear, uh, you know, label for where the division between mindware and, and, and wetware. And then why would we even think that consciousness is related so intimately to intelligence? And here I worry that that we have a specter of another kind of human exceptionalism. You know, that we think we're intelligent, which is a bit questionable these days, but you know, we we're certainly smart in some <laughs> objective ways compared to other species. What we do with that smartness is the questionable part. Um we think we're smart, we know we're conscious, so the two must go together. And this is a really dubious assumption because it leads us uh, maybe to overestimate the possibility of building um, machines that are conscious. I, by the way, I don't think we should even be trying to do that. Um, and it may lead us to underestimate. I don't think we're in any worry. I, I don't well, think we're in any danger of uh, creating conscious machines through building AI. No, I don't think we in, are. Anytime soon. <laughs> that's right. But but I, I, I subscribe to the thing, the view here that for something that could be so ethically cataclysmic, um, even the tiny possibility that we might succeed is worth a little bit of worry. Part of our worry budget should be devoted mm. that way. Not a massive amount, but part of sure. it. But I think sure. just more, more broadly, it, it seems to be often treated as this just, oh, that'd be cool. Let's just do it, you know, even if we can't do it. So the skepticism yeah. is often about like, oh, but you can't, you know, you're not going to succeed. But I think there's a deeper reason to question the the, the motivations and, and the goals, even if they're not achievable, because we don't know what it would take to build an actually conscious machine, but we also don't know what it would not take. We might do it by accident without realizing. Here, I'm actually worried about things like brain organoids. Um, brain organoids mm. are these brain-like structures of increasing complexity that are grown at scale in labs for good reasons, for good medical reasons. Um, but these are made out of neurons. So the whole question of substrate dependence or independence goes away. And so the possibility of uh, organoid consciousness, I think, is much more concerning than you know, consciousness suddenly shimmering into existence in in my next generation laptop. Uh so we've we've kind of rummaged around in this bag quite 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 a bit here, but I do think it's worth <laughs> worth separating the the tight bounds in my mind at least between consciousness and life and the looser bounds between consciousness and intelligence. Now, you probably have to have a minimal degree of intelligence to have a conscious experience. Right? Um, quite what that minimal degree is, it's hard to say. I mean, intelligence is a woolly concept, roughly doing yes. the right thing at the right time. Uh and being intelligent certainly gives an organism a richer space of possible conscious experiences. A simple, relatively dumb organism might be able to experience the difference between sadness and happiness, or suffering and, and joy or something. But but we humans can can experience sadness in all sorts of ways, in regret, in anticipatory regret, in all these all these things that depend on thinking about possible futures and possible counterfactual pasts. So the specific nature of conscious experience is very much tied to this kinds of thoughts and intelligent competences that we as humans have. But at root, I think it's much more closely tied up with life.
given our conversation today, so I, you know, I, I didn't know we we're going to talk about cerebral organoids at all. But as you were speaking, I was thinking, let's go speculative to to at, at the very last moment here. I was thinking that the kind of consciousness, the quality, the phenomenal experience of a cerebral organoid would be much more alien I, to my brain than, let's say, a chimp or some, someone. You know, I would imagine that a chimp would have a much more similar phenomenal experience to me than a cerebral organoid made from my own neurons, right? From, let's say, we, we uh, use a sample of my neurons and, and grow an or- organoid. It wouldn't be like me at all. Yeah, that's right. And firstly, I I, I also think that the prospect of, of building a conscious organoid is, is very remote, but I think it's much yeah. less remote yeah. than the prospect of building a, a conscious laptop. Um, one of the big questions about potentially conscious organoids, and again, I don't think we should be setting out to build these things, um, is whether a history of, of interaction with an environment matters. Uh, so yep. you know, we organisms, brains, non-organoid brains invariably have an evolutionary history that involves bodies and a developmental history that involves bodies, senses, interaction with an environment as well. And it's pretty clear that we don't need that interaction in the moment to have conscious experiences. We can we can be dreaming and be basically cut off at least from the external environment. But we may need a history of that interaction in order to provide any mm. determinate uh, conscious content. Uh, and so this, we, I think we wrote something along these lines in, in a paper. I, we had a paper with uh, Tim Bain and uh, Marcello Massimini in Trends in Neurosciences in 2020 called Islands of Awareness. And it was discussing candidate situations where we might, there might be consciousness completely cut off from a body in an environment. And an organoid was, was one of these cases. And I think we wrote there that we might be able in some, some future to tell uh, whether an organoid is conscious, but have no idea what it is conscious of at all. Uh, and I think that, you know, that could be one way it goes. On the other hand, people building organoids, designing organoids these days are equipping them with sensors, with, with actuators too. So you have now the possibility of, of organoids that can interact with an environment. But do they do so? Do they have a body that they maintain in a state of being alive? Now, that's a, that's a whole other question. Then you're not really talking about an organoid. You're talking about a synthetic creature with a brain, with a synthetic brain. Mm. Very different thing. Anil, we we went through a pretty good chunk of the book, but you know there was a ton more that we didn't get to cover, and I hope that people read the book, um, if not just for the pleasure of reading it, because it is easy on the eyes and mind as you read it, and of course uh, has tons of good ideas and and descriptions in there. So this has been a joy for me. Thank you for being here, and good luck with the book. Uh, thank you, Paul. It's been a, a terrific ramble through various landscapes of the book, and very much enjoyed the conversation. And thank you, Megan, for Lots of questions too. Brain Inspired is a production of me and you. I don't do advertisements. You can support the show through Patreon for a trifling amount and get access to the full versions of all the episodes, plus bonus episodes that focus more on the cultural side but still have science. Go to braininspired.co and find the red Patreon button there. To get in touch with me, email paul at braininspired.co. 
The music you hear is by The New Year. Find them at thenewyear.net. Thank you for your support. See you next time.